Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Crockcast Podcast. I'm your host, Nate, along with my co-host, Matt. Hey. And today we have on, again, uh, yet again, uh, Marissa Tellez. Marissa, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me again. So, uh, when we had you on last time, we kind of bit, did a bit of an oopsie and forgot your, like, main thing, <laughs> which was uh, your research with uh, crocodilian parasitology. So, you want to get uh, started on that then? Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I, I have to say thank you to the parasites. I feel like if I had an Oscar right now, right? Like you say yeah. your thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's why Will just, Smith doesn't walk up. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is because of par- my interest in parasites and wanting to pursue parasitology and crocs. Like it, I felt it kind of got my name out pretty quickly within the crocodile world just because nobody was doing it. I mean, people would find parasites and it's like, we found a parasite in the lungs of an alligator, but no one had really dived into the evolutionary and ecological interaction between crocodilians and their parasites. And that's what was fascinating me and what really got me into wanting to study this is in the early 2000s, there was the research that came out about, at that point, crocodilians having the strongest innate immune system in the world. So the strongest first line of defense um, in regards of your immune system. And it they did get demoted, I think it was like maybe a decade later, when someone looked at Komodo dragons. And Komodo dragons have the strongest innate immune system in the world. Then you got crocodilians. But anyways... So one thing that I had learned at a par- during a parasitology class that I took at- in college was in regards of this, um, this evolutionary race or co-evolutionary race between parasites and various other animals. And in my head, I thought, well, is it because of parasites that have led, cro- that in a sense kind of led or maybe help to create such a strong innate immune system because in the world of parasites, they want to survive in their host. And so Mm -hmm. they're obviously taking, they're taking from their host, they're taking nutrients or whatever it is, but they don't necessarily want to kill the host because if they kill the host then they die. But at the same time, it's a loss to the, to the host to have these parasites. And so you know, that you have this co-evolutionary race, um, the red queen hypothesis, and they get in the sense like the the host will increase its immune system to rid of parasites, but then the parasites evolve a stronger resistance or maybe some type of camouflage per se, you know, where they're able to attract various parts of a host immune system. So it's, they're disguising as their part of the body you know, and then the the host finds that out, you know, so it's this back and forth, back and forth. So I kind of thought, well, again, going back to what I originally said, is it possible that crocodilians have now the second strongest innate immune system in the world because of their parasites? So that's kind of what got me really into parasites. And again, opened the world of crocodilians, you know, and got my name out because I think it was like within a couple of years, I was parasite girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> in the crock world yeah. so what a great nickname to have <laughs> oh absolutely i i have a couple of colleagues that they call me parasite and when other people hear that they're like i'm like hi guys and people are like 
you're calling you a parasite. I'm like, no, no, no. It's because that's my expertise. Like, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a positive thing. Yeah, so uh, parasites really are trying to play the game of uh, goose laid and golden egg, so to speak. Like yeah. Your hosts. Yeah. So uh, in your uh, research with parasites, have you found anything uh, unusual about any particular parasites? So, yeah, I... I need, if there's any students, young students or young scientists out there that are looking for a graduate project, I have quite a few that involve parasites. And so during my PhD, I went out to Louisiana and Florida during the harvest of alligators to collect samples of parasites and lungs and as well as the gastrointestinal tract. And one thing I noticed or I observed right away was that the parasites in stomach. So we constantly hear that crocodilians have the strongest stomach acid in the world or one of the strongest that it can break down any parts of prey. Anything that a crocodilian eats, it can pretty much um, dissolve it or ingest it because of their stomach acid. I don't think it's just because of their stomach acid. I actually think it's because their stomach nematodes so nematodes are worms you know like mm. think of them. they're the, the the worms in the in the stomach and when crocodilians or what i saw with the alligators the american alligators is that when the american alligator consumes something the parasites would come out of the stomach mucosa or like the stomach lining of the alligator and start consuming the prey and one thing that I noticed is that they have, in a sense, this type of venom. And this quote-unquote venom of the stomach nematodes in American alligators, it was dissolving lead cases, like lead bullet cases. Oh. You can see it making holes in cartilage and bone. And this is when I just had this epiphany, just like my mind blew. And I'm like, it's not just the stomach acid that that's why crocodilians can digest so much different parts of prey, or in a sense, a whole prey. It has to do with their stomach nematodes. And so the only way to, in a sense, to kind of prove this particular hypothesis is, um, and that's why I'm saying this is a great graduate student project for anyone out there, uh, is that you can have some American alligators, like four to six feet, and make sure that they don't have any stomach nematodes. And then you have another group where they have the stomach nematodes, provide them the same type of prey and see the rate of digestion. And, and that way you can actually be able to determine if it truly is just the stomach acid. But again, just even from what I saw from freshly, um, freshly sacrificed alligators was it is, it's definitely not just the stomach acid. It is the, because of the nematodes that they can digest so much different prey. I mean, it was, I actually have the, I kept the lead bullet cases that are preserved at, um, at, at an office at UC Santa Barbara right now. And with some of the holes, I took out the nematodes and the others, I fixed the nematodes in the hole, but you can see the perfect holes that they made from the, in a sense, the quote unquote venom that they released when they're digesting the prey. It's, okay. So I have two questions off of that. Yeah. One, is that a, is, is the nematode, the, the relationship between the nematodes and the, the alligators, is that, um, 
Um, is that mutualistic or is that that's a mutualistic relationship? So, yeah. So that's the that's the other thing is like now through my studies, I these creatures that we would say parasites. And yeah, I mean, they are parasites. They're taking from their crocodilian hosts. I really want to say they're commensals or mutualists now from what I've observed. Absolutely. Because it is, um, we are kind of seeing this sometimes benefit between the, a mutual benefit between the parasite and the crocodilian. So this goes actually, this is my favorite chapter in my PhD is where I compared the bioaccumulation of heavy metals between parasites and the alligator. And this goes back to studies saying like, oh, you know, we gave alligators all these lead casings or, you know, we exposed alligators or crocodilians to all these different heavy metals and they don't seem to get high levels of toxicity. It is because of their parasites. The parasites are accumulating and in a sense metabolizing out the heavy metals that the, that the alligators are being exposed to keeping the host healthy because if the host is healthy, that means the host continues living, which also means the parasite continues to live and is able to do what it wants to do, which is just reproduce. And so the parasite is, is really the sink of heavy metal exposure within crocodilians. And so at that point, it's kind of a mutual benefit. And it's, it's a really interesting relationship that has evolved over millions of years. So uh, with that uh, heavy metal meta metabolism, uh, once the parasites uh, metabolize that heavy metals, uh, do you know how they like uh, get finally fully flushed out of the crocodilian system or? The heavy metals, you mean? Yeah. So the parasites, and so this is still, whew, they might have been able to figure this out by now. But like a couple of years ago, there was a there was a lab or one particular professor that was really looking at how parasites, in a sense, accumulate heavy metals. And this is just parasites in general. Like he was he looks more into fish and domestic animals. And so they were really trying to look at the physiology in regards of how parasites are able to consume, in a sense, survive. But then like somehow their body is able to break up the chemical bondage within the, with the, like with, yeah, the chemical bondage of the heavy metal. So in a sense, when it's like metabolized out, it's no longer um, a negative organic per se, but I, it, it's still very much like research is still going into that. So I don't have a concrete answer for you. When you check the rate of digestion, um, are you having are you flushing their stomachs? Or are you having to do necropsies? Or is there a way you can sonogram it? Like it's it's through the necropsies that I was looking at the rate of digestion. And you, I remember there was this one like nine to ten foot male alligator. He was huge. Everything just by looking at him, looking at muscle, looking at the girth and everything, everything would say that this was a very very healthy male. Um, up to up to his death. And then you open him up. And I mean, he had, I think it was like 3000 stomach nematodes. Oh, but wow. and like this, again, you just see the help, like in, they're helping in the digestion of the prey. And then in his intestines, he had flatworms, also known as trematodes, as well as some nematodes. I mean, he is riddled with parasites, but completely healthy. And I noticed this across 
all the alligators. And so compared to another animal, I mean, crocodilians really do have a lot of parasites, but they have evolved, which I, I think one of the reasons why they're able to sustain so much parasites that would, and any other animal would absolutely cause death. I think again, it's because they've developed this commensal or mutualistic relationship with the parasites. Um, is there like a, is, is something you're looking into like a healthy amount of like nematodes? That, Cause I assume if you have too many nematodes, like it, it's going to take most of the nutritional content away and you're not just like, they're going to, you know, they're not going to get the nutritional content. Is that something you're going to look into is like, um, an acceptable amount of nematodes <laughs> um, in that in is a great question and project. Would you like to leave that? I would love to. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, after you get back from grad school in Queensland. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like awesome. at, I'm at a point. Um, and it, it's funny, like so many of us, like, right, we get into the the wildlife research or crocodile research doing one thing, but like now, especially with the CRC. And it's just like everything's so broad. Like I do have some parasite students, but now it's instead of me necessarily being the hands-on um, investigator, now I'm more of like a mentor per se. Like I'll help initiate the projects and just kind of like yeah. help along because I have crazy out of the box ideas in regards of various projects, especially with parasites. And even if I continue to focus solely on parasitology, there's nowhere I could do all the projects I want in my lifetime. And so that's why I'm always looking for students, whether it's undergrad or graduate students, um, even postdoc students to cut, like, of course, if they're interested to, to pursue some of these particular projects, because I think it is really interesting. And it also helps us to understand the immunology and physiology, as well as the evolution of crocodilians. And those answers can really help us kind of start having hypotheses or predictions and how you know more human disturbance especially pollution as well as climate change how that can affect um the the populations of crocodilians yeah so um kind of dovetailing off of that i my last interview i had a song of a guy who did i can't remember the professor he did helped out but they found that uh in costa rica with american crocs that uh they'll be getting into tilapia farms and those tilapia being treated with testosterone to grow bigger. And that's actually messing up the sex ratios of the local crocodilian population. Was it Chris Murray? Yeah. 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 I interviewed uh, one of his uh, helpers who runs a specialty reptile shop up here in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So I found that was kind of interesting, but uh, that was kind of a side note, but wait, wait, wait. that's in, um, that's in Costa Rica. You said, yeah. That's uh, are the are tilapia native in Costa Rica because I know they're invasive here in Florida. Are they native in Costa I think Rica? They're an African fish, right? I yeah, I don't think they're native in Costa Rica. They're not native. I know they're not native here um, in Belize, and luckily they've been contained. There's been some tilapia catching um, in some rivers, but it's still not a huge issue of tilapia like escaping farms or anything. Florida, yeah. we just had a big invasive species roundup. I won third place for the heaviest fish caught. Just a little brag, but you can continue. Go ahead. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, Florida, Florida. I mean, at what point in Florida are the are you just gonna say, 
all right, it's just native now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so, but time back to Matt's question about how many parasites, too many parasites. Uh, a few months ago, you kind of lost a little crocodile pot potentially due to a parasite. So you want to go over yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, that was, oh my God, little Ricky Bobby. I was so excited to have Ricky Bobby as one of our crocodile ambassadors at Crocodile Research Coalition. The reason why I called him Ricky Bobby was when, so, when we went to go pick him up, the woman said one of the crocs, because there was two crocs and two baby crocs. And she said one of them is deformed and sick. And she sent a video, but it wasn't really clear. And I was like, okay, it looks like it has scoliosis. And then we picked it up. And I mean, he was just, it was bad. Like it was just very much an S shape. And then even you can see in the fingers, you know, if you've ever seen um, any animal with metabolic bone disease, like the, yeah. it's just swelling are all over the place. I mean, and I was just like, sweet baby Jesus, you know? And it just took me back to Talladega Nights. And um, I was speaking with Luis Sigler from Dallas World Aquarium. He is kind of, he's he's my, my Theo, my uncle in the croc world. He's one of the first guys I go to. He has so, so much experience in just everything croc. And um, so I was thinking since he's still very young because i know that there's been some treatment for um even kids that have scoliosis to there's a way to maybe not completely straighten up but just help not create such an s shape for um to alleviate any type of pain or any other discomfort as they grow so i was thinking i'm like well this is just this looks like about a yearling um is there a possible way that we can try to stretch little ricky bobby um, just to kind of not help with the scoliosis, maybe not completely fix it, but just help him out a little bit and get and start giving him the the right diet as well. Because the other croc that we that the lady had now, they found him in the wild, and the other if the thing is is that they were kind of stuck in this mud pond, and so because there was construction in the area, and then they noticed that these two little baby crocs were were stuck. The other one was perfect, healthy, just a normal yearling. And so that's why I was like, I don't, we kept going back and forth, were these pets? But if they were pets, why isn't the other one illustrating metabolic bone disease? And so that's when we're like, okay, this is maybe Ricky Bobby was just born deformed. You know, we were just trying to figure things out. So we had Ricky Bobby for about a month doing all the all the um uh procedures in regards of you know massage and trying to help out the scoliosis and stuff like that and unfortunately i remember we went to go respond to a crocodile call because people were feeding a particular crocodile in an area and the hotel was starting to get um freaked out because they knew that could cause an attack and so we went to go respond to the situation and when, when we came back, Ricky Bobby was floating and I was like, no, I was so sad. I was so, so sad. And I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, I did something wrong. Or, you know, what did I do? What did I do? And the next day when we did the, the necropsy, that's when I realized he didn't have a lot of time left. And I did notice he basked a lot. And so basking 
reptiles, crocodilians, when you see them basking a lot, it is because they are trying to fight off some type of pathogen, you know, parasite, bacteria, virus. They're sick. So they're basking to get all the heat of the sun to help rev up that immune system to fight off the pathogen. So I did notice that about him. And that's when I, you know, again, that's when I was like, well, maybe he was a pet, you know, and he's just trying to get all the, the vitamin D that maybe someone wasn't giving him, you know, it, it was just a constant back and forth of like, what, what was the past of this animal? So when we opened up Ricky Bobby and we have one or two videos on, on our YouTube channel, just the parasites that were in the lawns. And so he had four, four or five of these parasites known as pentastomids. So they're actually a parasitic crustacean. That is the only true, this is, this is what I say is that it is the only true parasite of crocodilians because it has caused epidemic mortalities at various farms. What this parasite does is that it eats away at the lungs of the crocodilian. And so um, it just slowly suffocates the animal. And then also we noticed that there was two teeny, teeny, teeny stomach nematodes. But this Ricky's Bobby's death was not caused by the stomach nematodes. It was definitely caused by these very large parasites that honestly were pretty much taking over his his lungs. And so I, that's when I realized this Ricky Bobby, you know, didn't die because of something that we did or whatever. He was already dying when we found him because yeah. it was just these parasites. But then as I started talking to some vets and again, Louis Sigler, I thought, I was like, you know what? Ricky Bobby likely was exposed to these parasites at a young age and parasites take nutrients and so the nutrients that Ricky Bobby needed to grow healthy was going towards the parasites, thus causing the symptoms of MBD. So I've spoken with a couple of vets and they like, I never thought about that, like parasites causing metabolic bone disease. And so this is, um, my team and I were in the process of identifying the pentastomids right now, but we are going to present our findings at the next IUCN crocodile specialist group working meeting that is in early July. And then we'll, we'll of course publish a paper, but it's a, it's a pretty unique case in regards of, again, the parasites causing metabolic bone disease and thus causing the death of a young crocodile. Hmm. So uh, with that sort of uh, parasite, you mentioned that before that it can have detrimental effects uh, for like farming and stuff like that. Is there any known like uh, treatment options for it or is there it's still a uncurable disease? It's pentastomids, um, especially because they're in the lungs. There is no treatment for pentastomids. Um, you can identify an infection by looking at fecal matter of crocodilians, which can be pretty difficult. Um, to like get a good sample to look at the eggs to look at the yeah the eggs of the pentastomid but at this point there's no treatment for pentastomids and so i mean i've seen adult like adult alligators and crocodiles you know when they when i've done necropsies they'll have a couple of pentastomids a couple of pentastomids is not going to do anything but it's just that is the parasite that once it reaches threshold it's going to cause the death of the animal and it's a you know I, it's a the animal starts suffocating. They can't, it's not going to be 
the the easiest death for that animal. It's basically are alligator they, TB. Yeah. Are they getting most of these um, parasites from the fish that they're eating? Yes. Yes. So um, this particular parasite, um, the life cycle is semi-known, but it is going to be coming from fish. But it is possible that the alligators... So Ricky Bobby likely got the penistomates from eating little fish. Uh, but it is possible that they can also get it from eating turtles because turtles can also get this pentastomid as well as snakes. And so if they consume a turtle or a snake that already has the adult penistomid, that penistomid possibly might not be digested because they have a really thick cuticle and they can somehow like burrow through the stomach mucosa, get into the circulatory system of an alligator or crocodile and then find itself back in the lungs. And then it can, uh, it can infect a new host. So, oh, and then something else that's super crazy is uh, I had a student years ago. She started noticing that all the pentastomids that she was finding in the lungs of alligators were all female because they are dioecious. So you have a male and a female. And then she would, there was a couple of alligators where you would find the pentastomids in the throats or the esophagus, and those were male. And so we started thinking about it. We're like, hmm, I wonder if females are the true parasites in the lungs. And it's possible because you do see this in other parasite species. Yes, yes. And so the males might, in a sense, follow some type of chemical cue of the female pentastomid that's in the lungs. And it's a free, the male is free living and then enters in, inside the alligator's mouth and then finds its way into the lungs, mates with the female, and then, you know, let's say dies or maybe it crawls out again. We don't know. Um, again, this is just a hypothesis that we had. And then when we conducted the necropsy on Ricky Bobby, all of the parasites in the lungs, only females. Wow. So there's no, um, these pentatomids, there's no, um, uh, there's no hermaphrodite in it at all. It's no strict wow. female. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Huh. Maybe that's the way to cure it. Find a way to kill the males in the bloodstream. That yeah, that could definitely be like one way if the males like are yeah, get in the get into the bloodstream. Um, but yeah, there's still studies that need to look into the life cycle of it but the, and again just a hypothesis um great graduate student project <laughs> out there for again, sure yeah. <laughs> um so we've gone over uh stomach worms and we've gone over what basically a uh lung mosquito crabs more or less but uh is there any other unique uh, parasites if you found over the years so I now also have a theory and I'm not saying it happens all the time, not all the time, but I do think it's possible that parasites um, can cause or increase the rate of cannibalism in crocodilians. And so a study came out in 2016 ish that, um, 
a lot of cannibalism that we see in animals. And this is also, they looked at humans, especially these culture, like these particular cultures that actually would consume humans for whatever reason. Um, and cannibalism was, you know, not a sense, a big part of the culture, but it was part of the culture. Yeah. Um, these people or these animals are infected by a particular trematode or flatworm that infects the brain or the spinal cord. So again, there's just been studies and studies and studies and that if it, this particular worm, and it, it, it could be various species or like a, a, or a particular family or genre, but if they get a particular part of the brain, it causes something where you're more likely to cannibalize or an animal will, or it's like not a big deal if it does, right? And so, cause there is like that kind of, and you know, there's some been some discussion where, you know, why don't animals predate on the same species? You know, they're conspecific. So there's something evolutionary in the brain that's like, oh no, 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 you know, uh, a lion per se. I mean, I so, do male lions will predate, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like overall, it's like, oh, can't do that, can't do that. Yeah. So man. no, I was gonna say, um. So, okay, so I have three questions off of that. The, yeah, the, yeah, go for it. The first two um, are, do alligators have prefrontal a prefrontal cortex, and are those parasites affecting the prefrontal cortex? They do. However, there has not been a study to actually look at the parasites infecting the brain. Okay. Because I know a lot of, like, like, mad cow disease and a lot of stuff like that, it affects the prefrontal cortex. So I was wondering if that... Um, the, the third, so the other thing, it's kind of a, a question along with like a story, but <laughs> someone was telling me, uh, someone told me at one point that, um, well, so there's a type of salamander. I don't remember what type they have those Borman teeth. And if there's not a lot of food, they will cannibalize. Um, yeah. and they, those Borman teeth grow larger, they eat them and stuff. And they apparently grow faster and much stronger if they cannibalize, but they don't do it because they get like ostracized by other salamanders. And so they can't get any, like, I don't know how social salamanders are, but apparently they like, yeah, because it's behavior you typically see in like a, a social animal, like it can't get benefits from the, from the social aspect of the animal. So it, it doesn't do it. Anyways, I, I don't know if that relates at all to, I know alligators are more social than sal most salamanders at least. So Yeah, and crocodiles. And we know that they do predate in the wild because there might not be a lot of food. Um, you know, there was a territorial dispute and someone died and, you know, hey, it's free food. Why not? Like it, it, it does happen. And, but now the question is, is part of that also is that button pushed a little bit more because there might be parasites in the brain. And the reason I say this is, and, and uh, we did publish a small research note in Herpological Review a few years ago about the high rate of cannibalism that we saw in this one population in Belize. So it's a pretty isolated population. I mean, it, the amount of habitat they have is huge so it's not like you have hundreds of crocodiles in this little space i mean there is plenty of space there's more space for crocodiles here 
So, and good habitat, very good habitat. And one night we headed out to, for our nocturnal eye shine survey or capture survey of crocodiles in this area. No one had done a study for almost 15, 16 years at this point. And we saw a very large crocodile and someone's like, oh, it has, it has something in its mouth. You know, I'm just thinking, I mean, it's any of the small mammals in Chickable Forest. And next thing we realize, we're like, oh my gosh, that's, that, that's a crocodile. And as we got closer, the, the large animal let it go. And we were able to salvage a good chunk of the corpse and like just estimation, it was about five foot. It was a female. We're like, oh my God, that's so interesting. And now or later, going further down the river, another large crocodile. It also has a, a, a crocodile in its mouth. We get closer, it lets go. And again, get the corpse, about a five foot female. We go out the next night, same area, likely one of the same larger crocs, definitely a different corpse, definitely a different corpse about a five foot female. And we're like, what the hell is going on here? And this is an area that it is, there's tons of rangers. Um, this, there, we've got the army, sometimes the British army goes in there. This was not, you can tell, this is not due to poachers. This is not due to illegal hunting of the crocodiles. And it was, it was about May or June, which is breeding season for the more or less crocodile. So we started kind of like hypothesizing that it was because some of the crocs we could tell were good, like nine to 10 feet. And that's usually a male. Females don't get that big, but you know, maybe an eight foot more or less crocodile in, in the wild, in the wild here in Belize. And so, you know, as we were talking and then I started, I remember I messaged Graham Webb in Australia, because obviously they see a lot of cannibalism with the Australian crocs or into the Pacific Crocs over there. And I talked to a couple of other people and like, just talking with them, I came to the conclusion that it's possible um, in this particular area, because you know, the females will fight for good nesting habitat. And a five foot female, that is a young female. So we likely had some type of serial killing female that was taking out the smaller females. And then you had the big boys coming in to consume um and i mean it is possible one of the one of the crocs that we saw was the female that killed one of these animals but and so the reason how this connects to the parasites is i had also noticed on the river as we were you know going down the river you had a lot of fish coming up to the surface and then swimming on their backs or having this erratic swimming behavior and i knew from my previous studies at uc santa barbara that is caused by a trematode parasite because the fish are, you know, making a lot of splashing and whatever, and whether the final host is a bird or a crocodile that attracts the predator to come in and consume. And that helps with the life cycle of the parasite. And usually that particular parasite will infect the brain or the spinal cord of a fish. And I had asked the rangers, I was like, have you guys, noticed possibly in the last couple of years a lot of the fish swimming radically they're like oh yeah, yeah yeah we have noticed an increase about that and i was like and didn't you say last year you also saw cannibalism of the crocs here and they're like yeah and then they started you could see one of them was thinking about it they're like 
you know, as we started to see more of the fish acting weird, we have seen more of these like half killed crocodiles. And I was like, bing, 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 bing. this might be, beca be because of a parasite infecting the brain and causing the cannibalism. So do you have any theories as to why it would cause cannibalism? Like, like obviously it's affecting the brain, but why, why, I guess to consume, why, why, why? <laughs> I mean, in regards of a, a parasite, they just want to make sure that their reproductive cycle can continue. So whatever they can do to make an intermediate host more attractive to be able to like predate on the, um, by a crocodile, but then that parasite infecting the crocodile, I mean, in a sense that could also just be the the trematards are hermaphrodites, but you know, they also want to be able to, they can self-fertilize some of them, but of course they also want to have some type of cross-fertilization. So if you can start getting some more trematodes around, that's even better for genetics and evolution. So and I'm not saying like, you know, the parasites are scheming all this, but this is just kind of like based on yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dogma and parasitology when it comes to like, why are parasites doing this? Why are they causing the cannibalism? And then the, um, there was something about humans. Oh, this article was so fascinating when it started um, about cannibalism in animals, including humans, but there was, and I really can't remember it. I have to, I'd have to find this article again, but there was a discussion why cannibalism within humans benefited the, the parasites. I, I'll have to look that up. It was fascinating. It was really, and then again, it was like within a year, I'm, it was just serpentipitous. So it was just a year later here. I'm in Chickabool forest and seeing all this cannibalism and, you know, speaking with rangers that have seen it as well. And then you have the fish swimming on the surface and it was just like, Oh my God, this could be, you know, the high rate of cannibalism that we're seeing. It could be because of parasites, you know? And again, I, we, we, it is also taking in the knowledge that crocodilians, they do consume just as a source of food, you know, a smaller crocodile, but it, you know, part of the time it could be because of, uh, of a parasite. Yeah. Well, that, um, with those fish, especially, um, it almost sounds like those parasites are acting like how toxoplasmosis acts with cats and their prey. Yes. Ah, oh, toxo is such a fascinating parasite. And I was, um, you guys know Frank Rob, who Frank Rob is? He's the guy that uh, caught Chance in Chicago. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, reached out to him about getting him on the podcast here soon. Yeah, yeah. So um, he has a podcast now, and I went on his, and we got completely sidetracked of crocodilians and everything. And um, I started talking about toxoplasmosis. And I, <laughs> one thing I remember he found fascinating was, um, you know, for humans, we can get toxoplasmosis as well. We can be infected by toxo because of our interactions with cats. And if a male, if a, an adult male human has toxo, they are highly attracted to the smell of cat urine. Huh. And uh... will, like, like for some reason, let's just say there's like a litter box here. You're at your friend's house, there's a party and you know, you're drinking beer or whatever, you know, and you're not getting drunk or whatever, but you just really want to stand next to the cat litter box because you're just attracted to that cat you're in. Huh. Now, uh, 
don't know this for certain, but I have heard that Toxo's potential reason behind that stereotype of the crazy cat lady, so to speak. That because I've heard that in the prions as well, but also in humans, it causes people to be either have like zero fear or an unusual attraction to, to any and all things cats. Yeah, so you do have this because the Toxo is kind of causing, you know, at that point, you're the intermediate host, right? You're the mouse. And Toxo and a mouse or a rat, it affects the brain. It actually increases a lot of dopamine. So it slows down reaction times. But yes, it also um, causes that lack of fear and you more willing to take a risk. Um, and so, yes, most people that have, or people that have Toxo, there is that whole like, oh, it's, um, they are more of the cat people type of person. Uh, there was a study that in Europe that looked at people in car crashes, the ma majority of people that caused a car crash, the, there was a very high percentage of them that they actually had Toxo. Hmm. And so that car crash was caused again, kind of by this, um, lack of reaction time, right. Because of, because of Toxo and that's its benefit in rat, like making the rat slower so then the cat can consume it and then it's able to reproduce again and then what was also a study also came out that was really interesting is majority at that point I, I think the study came out in the late 1990s early 2000s but at that point in time uh the world leaders ceos of big companies you know presidents of whatever you know whether it's a company or a country all that uh, those that participated in this particular research study majority of them had toxoplasmosis and they, when you think about it, leaders, stockholders, you know, people in the 1%, sometimes they got that because they took some type of risk, you know, whether it's, you know, thinking out of the box, you know, putting your money into something you're not sure, you're just a little bit more willing to be risky. And, um, and so, yeah, a lot of the world leaders, they have toxoplasmosis. <laughs> so <That's> really interesting. <laughs> Yeah. So for pregnant women, uh, you do get tested because there is a point where toxoplasmosis can cause um, abortion or, you know, a miscarriage. And so I think it's in this by the third month or the second trimester, uh, you have to take a toxo test. And honestly, I thought I was going to be positive. And when I when they told me I was negative, I was really upset because <laughs> I was like, so you're just saying I'm risky just because you know, I'm thinking the whole time stuff I do with crocodiles and snakes. I'm like, in the back of my head, I'm like, it's probably because I have toxoplasmosis. No, I'm just a risky person. <laughs> it's my mind, not the worms. Yeah. Yeah. I was just like, I remember the nurses. They're like, oh, good. You know, just to let you know you're negative. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, going back to the, the cannibalism thing, yeah, something that would be interesting. So I've heard, um, or I, I, I've, you know, I've talked about the, with people before, like why, why don't animals cannibalize other animals? What would be interesting is to do a study to see if the more social an animal it is, the less likely they are to cannibalize because they need the social aspect, but would what would then be interesting to see is if 
those that are affected by the parasites that cause them to be cannibalized, if they're more likely to cannibalize if they're in a social setting, because like, like if they're more social, there's, they're going to cannibalize more because there's more of a guaranteed meal because they're around those that are in their social circles, as opposed to having to hunt for food. If that makes sense. No, no, no. That absolutely makes sense. Again, I, Hopefully a young scientist is listening and wants to pick this up as a graduate project. (laughs) (laughs) No, but yeah, that's actually, that's really, really interesting. And, you know, it it would also, you know, you have some crocodilian species, like going back to crocodiles, some are more gregarious than others. You know, do you see cannibalism more in the solitary species than the gregarious species? Like, I mean, that's, I mean, there's all different little questions that you can ask. For sure. Yeah, because uh, just from like notice, noticing with uh, all the croc people I follow on social media and stuff like that, all their posts and all I talk about, it seems like you see a lot more cannibalism among salties than, say, Niles, for example. Yeah. And everyone knows Niles are pretty social and salties are kind of like the, the big angry Asperger's kid of the salt water, of the crocodile world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just every Australian ever. But and then the other thing is also looking in population. So one thing that I learned uh, whoo, quite a few months ago, right? Everyone thinks of Gariel, and it's just like, oh my gosh, they're the best parents, you know. And then and they'll take care of you know. You have this social structure of cohorts of like up to three years. You know, the brothers, brothers and sisters of three years, kind of also like watching out for the new siblings, kind of thing. And uh, in in India in a particular area of India. And so everyone just thinks like Gariels are these wonderful parents. But then you have Phoebe who is studying Gariel in Nepal. Why can I not think of her last name? Oh my gosh. You're listening, Phoebe. I'm sorry. Griffin. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And so um, she was mentioning, because I had reached out to her about something. And she's like, oh no, our Gariel are awful parents. Not awful, but they just... It's not what you see in India with the with the mom, the dad, and the cute babies on top. They're just kind of like, I'll hang around for a couple weeks, and then you're on your own, which is like the American crocodile. Kind of hangs out, won't really protect the nest, you know, and after three weeks, okay, bye, you know, see you later. That's probably one of the reasons why the American crocodile is not doing so great uh, throughout its range is just because the parental care is really not there. Um, especially with an increase of various mesopredators for ver- for various reasons. Whereas they, like, crocodile is a pretty, they're pretty bold. They're, they're protective of their nests, even in urban areas that we've noticed. Do they have the like American alligators that are um, uh, lower maternal care or parental care? Do they have larger clutch sizes compared to those that are, are they about the same? They're about the same. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. Wonder why that would be. Yeah, it's, yeah, the American crocodile is not a great, not a great parent. And so there's been a couple of areas where we've come in and taken the babies and put them in better nurseries where they're, they have a higher chance of surviving, um, you know, against birds and big tarpon and stuff like that, just because or like even raccoons uh, and and other type of terrestrial predators because they're just like meh. 
that's interesting. I've also heard that about uh, salties as well, that they're nowhere near as good of parents as some other species. Yeah, I I mean, they will protect nests. Um, but again, it could be just due to population because, you know, there some of the moralettes that we have gone to investigate nests, you don't really see them. But then in these other areas, the moms are like, they are coming out and they will kill you. And there's a, a story that Graham Webb from Australia told me years ago. And I, I don't know how he got onto it, but he, let's see, how old is his son now, Freddie? Freddie's like, I think he's in his 20s now. But when Freddie was about three years old, you know, Graham had gone out to the field, do nest stuff um, for the salties. And it was just two guys that day. So it was Graham and his colleague. And Graham was like, okay, I will be the one to dig up the nest and get the get all the data on the eggs. Like, you need to be a watch out on Mama. And they were pretty much, they were in a remote area. Well, Mama snuck up. And the guy that was supposed to be looking out for Mala didn't see. And what happened was Graham, you know, he just kind of felt something was behind him and he heard a little something. He turned around and there's a nine foot, I think he said nine foot salty, 10 foot female salty. And she lunged and he was able to kind of do a runner sprint a little bit, but she was still able to get his leg and kind mm -hmm. of shook it a little bit, but let go, right? Crocodilians, they won't latch. They will let go because sometimes they just want to do a defense fight. And so he let go. Obviously, his calves all messed up and he has some trauma of being attacked by this nine-foot female. Well, three-year-old Freddie thought it would be funny to be the female crocodile. And so <laughs> Graham was telling me that Freddie like snuck up on him one time and grabbed his calf. And like, this was like, like a week or two after he got attacked by this crocodile. I was like, ah! And like, it freaked him out. And of course, when a kid does something bad, but it's funny, you know, you shouldn't laugh. But <laughs> with that reaction, Freddie kept sneaking up to Graham and grabbing his leg. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was a great story when Graham was telling me. I was like, you know, I'm going to be sharing this with all the people because it's just so funny. It's little... yeah, it really yeah, funny. That's why we need to get Graham on the show sometime. Yeah. <laughs> to see, so I accidentally said American alligator before I meant to say American croc. I just I realized that when you said American croc. But um, I got to see my first American croc, uh, and probably like a month ago now. So that was pretty cool. Oh, From, where at? Uh, Flamingo Bay. Someone is. Oh, what's his name? Uh, is it Flamingo Bay? There's apparently a really big crocodile there is one over so the the ones where you're guaranteed to see them is flamingo bay marina but there's like a nine mile lake or some something like that it's not even that big i don't know why they call it that but apparently a guy told me that there's a massive one in there so maybe that's maybe that's what i'm thinking of i have heard about flamingo bay though and having yeah. some some good sized crocs in that area yeah it was it was it was a pretty good size it was it was interesting. The tail seems a whole lot longer than like in an alligator. Oh, interesting. Um, that could have just been the one that I saw, but it's yeah. it it seemed like the body was around the same like size of like a, a big alligator, but the the 
the details a little bit longer. So that was pretty interesting. But it was really cool because I got really, I got to get like really close to it. It was really cool to it was, get that off my life list, especially because I'm going to Australia soon. And I thought it'd be like a tragedy to see an Australian croc before I saw an American croc. So. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, I have heard that like a uh, salties an adaptation for uh, going out to the open ocean is they have proportionally longer tails than other crocs. So maybe that's something to do with uh, Americans as well, since they're fairly uh, marine species as well. Uh, yeah, they are a marine species. So that actually could be true. I never thought about that before. That's really interesting. So uh, Matt, you have any other uh, parasite related questions? Are there, um, do freshwater, are freshwater um, crocodilians getting parasitized more than saltwater? I do not know. Um, just because of some species being more heavily studied than others, you just, you know, like we know a lot about American alligator parasites. We know a lot about the spectacle caiman and their parasites and the, the Australian or Indo-Pacific. Um, like those are really well studied, but to say, to, to look at difference between those that are more freshwater and those that are more brackish or salt, it's, it's hard to say just because there's just a bias in studies. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, those, uh, freshwater, those, uh, marine species often go into the freshwater all the time as well. So. Yeah. 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 We do see that with our American crocs here. So, uh, go ahead. No, I was. I was just thinking, I think it's a dumb question, but <laughs> there's no dumb questions. Well, I was, well, on dumb questions. I was just thinking like, so are, are these parasites, are they susceptible to, to salt? Like theoretically could like uh, a saltwater croc take in saltwater, like without killing itself to kill some of the parasites within it? No, but you, I mean, if they had, let's say, had ticks or leeches from a freshwater environment, going into the salt water would kill off the ectoparasite. Yeah, I've heard that. I wasn't sure if they could. Not the would... mm, Okay, interesting. Um, no, I think I'm out of parasite questions now. <laughs> okay, so, shift gear. Uh, since we last talked, has it, there been any new uh, developments and research with uh, CRC in general or? When did we last talk? <laughs> I think it was September last year. When was it? I think it was like September or something like that. Um, let's see. We started studying green iguanas on the peninsula. That's um, cool. It's it's funny. We so myself and two other researchers participated in the IUCN iguana specialist group conference in November, like virtually. And almost everyone was talking about, oh, green iguanas being invasive and there's so many and they're overtaking the, the native species. And here in Belize, we're like, they're like endangered here. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny because like, we, you know, we want to, like we want to get numbers higher and, you know, protect them and everyone's trying to rid of them. And it's just like, bring them to Belize, like bring them to their native range. Like they are, there hasn't been any good population studies, at least in Belize and even talking to some other people of the green iguana throughout its native range, like in certain areas. But like, in, because 
of illegal hunting, especially around Easter, because people do consume them. Um, loss of habitat. I mean, they, yeah, they're, they're not doing so well here, but yeah. So we started the green iguana surveys. Um, we're continuing our American crocodile population survey. And what was fantastic was, or really exciting was the last three weeks. I had my colleague, Matt Sparks here, and he's the one that helped us initiate all our drone surveys of the manatee and crocodiles in Placencia Lagoon, where CRC is based. And he brought a thermal drone, not, not a, oh, let, let me put a thermal camera on the drone or a, th or a filter or whatever, like a thermal drone. And so we were troubleshooting this and to see if we we're able to find crocs day and night. And we are, um, the crocodiles day and night, their temperature just seems to vary differently from the external environment. Whereas like, for example, the manatee, we couldn't pick up the manatee during the day. We were only able to pick it up at night. So that was something that was really interesting between mammal versus crocodilian. And so one of the reasons with the thermal drones that would be really good is just that, especially as you move forward with studying very shy or cryptic species is that, you know, they might hear the boat and go down somewhere or go into a lagoon that you can't get to through boat, kayak, or even by foot. And so by utilizing the thermal drone, we're able to possibly increase our, um, our precision when it comes to understanding what the population is in a particular area. And then also kind of seeing that, you know, are these crocodiles congregating in a particular area that we can't get to, which then is important for conservation reasons. And, um, and then just looking at behavior, we, from my old students behavior studies, we know that the crocodiles are, uh, at least here in Belize, their courtship during breeding season happens at night. So we could use a thermal drone to possibly observe the courtship that is happening here in the wild. So there's a, so it was just a lot of troubleshooting. Um, it was funny. We took out the thermal drone to this one area off in the Keys in Belize. Um, at Turn of Atoll, there hadn't been studies there, any croc studies done for over a decade. Some areas even for like 20 years. And so Matt's flying the drone. He takes it off and I see a bunch of birds. And it's just like, okay, I'm observing. I'll let him know if he needs to bring it back down. I literally, I'm seeing these grackles. There was a frigate bird and I bent down. I'm like, oh, you know, everything's fine. I bent down to get my water bottle. All of a sudden I hear Matt go, oh God, something just hit it. And I was like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and you just see the thrill going, like flying all crazy and stuff. And then it just crashes into the mangrove. And I was like, oh, how are we going to get this back? How are we going to get this back? I don't know how, but one of the rangers that we were with from TASA found the drone, a missing a propeller. It was underwater. We were able to fly it again. Wow. Two days. That's I, insane. Yeah, it was an indestructible. It's a it's a, a drone made by it's a parrot drone. It's a company from France. Apparently, they make these indestructible drones. Um, but that was pretty awesome. So he he left, but um, we're hoping whenever he comes back next year, he can stay a little bit longer and we can start doing some more thermal stuff. Um, and then also we, 
the last couple of years, we haven't really focused on nest ecology, but I'm starting to realize how important that is for future conservation um, management plans. So this year, along with a researcher, Everett Madsen, um, we are looking at how nest substrate um, can affect the microclimate within nests, thus possibly affecting the sex ratio in nests. So we put data loggers in some of the crocodile nests from the past few weeks to monitor temperature and humidity. And what we, what, one thing that's unique here in Belize, and I'm sure it happens in other places throughout its range, but we have found cro American crocodiles nesting in clay, nesting in, you know, trash, soil, and then you have the historical sandy beaches. And so we're putting, we want to put the data loggers and the various substrates just to kind of see how um, the substrates may vary again in humidity and temperature. And I don't know, does one substrate kind of assist in, in increasing the incubation time? So the, you know, the, the hatchlings aren't in a nest as long as we historically know, we don't know. So we're just, this year's a preliminary survey and uh, we'll hopefully we'll kind of smooth out any kinks. And then next year we're hoping to deploy more data loggers in nest. It'll also be interesting to see uh, like uh, if the difference between those uh, incubation substrates have anything to do with potentially like fertility or predation rates or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have a lot of questions. Um, we've teamed up with another NGO here in Belize, TASA, um, who they help manage one of the furthest keys in Belize. So they're super excited about this. And yeah, so we're, we're really excited. Like I said, this year's more of like a prelim survey, just kind of, you know, smoothing out all the kinks. And um, we know where some nests are, but uh, it does seem like, at least down here, the American crocs may be nesting later than usual. And I don't know why. Climate change, most likely. Um, all right. So we, we had on a guy who's... Uh, he works with the Blue Iguana Conservation Project. Oh, yeah, uh, Luke Harding. Yeah. And Luke Harding. Okay, yes. Mm -hmm. I know who he, he is. He was saying that the green iguanas are invasive over in the Grand Cayman Islands, too, and that they're spreading a lot of parasites, or maybe it's just viruses. Viruses, I think it's just viruses, over to the blue iguanas, and that was a problem over there. Have you seen any green iguanas um, passing any viruses over to the um, to, to the crocodilians over there. I no. imagine they're probably, since they're native, they probably don't. Yeah. Nothing. We're not seeing anything here um, in regards of like invasive parasites or uh, we don't really have invasive species here in Belize. Um, I mean, red ear, red ear sliders, but they're everywhere, right? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, other than that, and I think part of it is it is illegal to have any wildlife as pets, even our native. And so with that, you know, people aren't importing anything in and then letting it go. And even though we're surrounded by Guatemala and Mexico, you know, we have rivers. It just, we just don't really have invasive species here. Is that, is the, the no pet thing, is that because of, to prevent invasive? It, 
honestly, it's a little bit part of culture. Canadians mm -hmm. uh, are very, uh, the Belizean culture is very big about wildlife should be in the wild. Um, even though like, you know, we do know Maya culture, you know, the aristocrats, the, the kings and queens, they would have wildlife as pets. But overall, it is wildlife should be in the wild. It's um, and then I think another piece of that goes back to colonization in regards of back in the day when Belize was part of was just a British co uh, colony. You had a bunch of people taking animals and then taking them to England or the U.S. or whatever. So when Belize got their independence, they said, you are not exploiting us anymore. Our wildlife is staying here. Nobody is taking them. And kind of with that, it was just, um, I think because Belize is not very developed as well, people are just so used to just, why, why do I need to have a pet parrot, a pet monkey when they're literally in the tree right here? Yeah. And it's great. I get to experience them and I don't have to worry about feeding them, taking them a vet and all this other stuff. They're literally right there. So what's the point having it as a pet? And yeah. I think that's the beauty of Belize is that it is because it's not very developed. We, um, I, I had a student from Europe one time come and he, he had mentioned the reason why, you know, in Europe, like, cause he was mentioning, um, a lot of people have snakes and venomous snakes. And he's just like, we've destroyed our nature. We, the only way for us to experience nature is to have them as pets, you know? And so, and that was, I always thought that was really, really interesting is that because in certain areas and cities or more developed countries, you don't have nature around you anymore. So yeah, the only way, and you have that deep innate urge to be part of nature and and like the only way to do that is in a, in a sense to have the pets. I, I just always thought that was really interesting that of what he, he had mentioned. But like I said, here in Belize, it's like, I have yellowhead parrots, I have green iguana, tinosaur, yellowhead parrots, red lord parrots, kawadi, boas, racers, all this just in my yard. Like That's in my yard, I have manatee coming up in the canal. I have crocodiles coming in the canal. So I'm like, yeah, why do I need a pet? <laughs> it's, it's literally right here. <laughs> it's one less mouth to feed too. Yes. Yes. One less mouth to feed, you know? I mean, if anything, it's just, I, you know, I have a couple of uh, like, um, bird baths per se, lizard baths, you know, water and stuff. Um, uh, my compost is just right outside. So if someone needs a snack or whatever, but I, again, I, I, I get to see the beauty, but I don't have to worry about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. It's very, yeah, that is neat. That would be, I guess, the ultimate goal is to get more urbanized cities, more integrated they're apparently they're doing a lot of that stuff like covering buildings with like plants and stuff like the, yeah the, the entire building's like a plant it's, it's like crazy yeah i've been seeing more and more of that and it's supposed to be i mean there how many studies have come out saying you know going for a walk in a forest even 20 minutes does so much for your mental state 
even subconsciously. And it is because we've, we are a part of nature. We have just evolved so quickly out of it because of technology and just society. But there, there is that part of us that we want to be part of it. And so um, I think that's why there are so many cities. And I know Europe has really been spearheading this, but trying to create these green spaces, you know, for mental and physical health of people. Well, even um, like, so I'm super like, I'm all, I'm literally like always outside. I hate being inside. And I even do like kayak tours a lot and stuff where I'm always outside in mangrove tunnels and stuff like that. And, and, you know, showing people it even like during busy season, you know, where I'm going back to back constantly doing all this kind of stuff. I, I got the wind was too high and I got a couple of days off and I went into the, I went into the Everglades and I was still kayaking. I still did the same exact thing that I was already doing, but it was just, it, it was like a refresh to me just yeah. being able to be out I don't know. It's, I, I, I never, that's a good way to articulate it. Cause I never know how to describe it to people. It's not, whenever I describe it, it sounds super hippie. Like I always tell them it's like restorative to the soul. When I go into the Everglades, it's just like, I feel so much better. I, I don't know how to describe it, but anyways, that's a really good, like you, we want to be in nature, even, even when I'm outside a lot, just being able to be by yourself in nature and just sit there. It's so rejuvenating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like I said, so many studies have come out about, the, the benefits physically and especially mentally. Um, and I, I, Japan is another country that has been really spearheading and changing a lot of their urban areas and trying to get green back, um, which, uh, and then that brings back wildlife, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. The, um, the, pro the, the other problem you would have with that is um the reason why a lot of i feel like a lot of this urbanization happened to begin with you know some sort of negative thing happens with an animal and a human and humans just try and separate themselves from it and then you get to where we are now and stuff you'd have to change the mindset in humans of like it's you know it happened with like obviously you don't want it to happen but it you know yeah, it's education. It's ed education is so so big, and I mean, with here in the CR the CRC in Placencia Lagoon, unfortunately, Placencia is becoming a big destination for retired expats, and and I know people in Florida complain about this all the time. You have these you have these Yankees coming to Florida, and yeah. they love Florida, but they don't want any of the wildlife. I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. And so it's just kind of really educating these people. And especially when you come to a foreign country, it's just like, do, don't try to gentrify the culture here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not gonna get, I don't, I, I have had a couple of Floridians, I have a crocodile in my, in the canal, can you remove it? And I said, What's, what is it doing? Oh, it's just swimming. I'm like, this ain't Florida. No, we're not the, like here. You're going to have to learn how to coexist. If you don't want to this crocodile here, because guess what? Everyone else in your neighborhood loves Jeff. You're going to have to move. And I was like, and if you want the whole neighborhood to, to hate you, you moving Jeff, you're not going to have a fun time living here anymore. Like, cause I mean, that's, and that's just how it is. And so <laughs> <laughs> you, you, like, 
when I do these, do these characters in the side, you'll be, you'll be surprised you get these people that come in that are like, um, the, you know, are, are there gators, you know, and, you know, they, they don't want to see gators and all this stuff. And I'm like, but that's cool. Like, why? Yeah. Like, there aren't any where we do it. Um, but I was like, why wouldn't you want to see it? Like, that's just, it's just like, I always, I always encourage people to go down kayaking down Turner River in the Everglades because you can kayak past a bunch of gators and it's really cool to see. And they're all like, I think your idea of fun and cool is different from mine. I'm just like, why wouldn't that be cool to be able to kayak right next to a gator? It's not going to do anything. It just sits there. <laughs> but then those same people are going to head to Australia or Central America and then pay for a tour to come see crocodiles because it's really cool yeah. to see reptilian. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, me personally, I would like to have a neighborhood crocodile named Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's getting to the hour where the creatures start coming out. So I don't know if you guys can hear my dogs, but it's because it's wildlife. It's dusk. It's the time for the wildlife to come out. But yeah, yeah. I we've done a really big. I I mean, for me, the outreach is, it has to be continuous. I I never when we started the CRC, I was like, we're not going to school once a year or every other year because I like I remember being in in school and maybe i think we went to the la zoo once maybe had someone come by to do a wildlife show once or twice throughout my eight years at this elementary slash junior high school and if you don't just innately love wildlife all the information they provide you is going to go one ear and out the other you know and so that's why like with us with the kids and then even just like facebook's really huge here in belize um, and so with the local Facebook pages, we are constantly posting, whether it's like what we're doing for research or some type of educational thing, just so it's just even subconsciously getting into people's mind about how to coexist. These are not your man-eating species, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like overall, I'm not saying it's 100% perfect, especially with so many people moving in. I feel like some days I feel like we're back to square one. Um, but it's just the constant, constant, constant. And overall, I mean, again, we have, Jeff was like a seven and a half, eight foot crocodile and everyone was like super cool with him. And we've had some other crocodiles, like at some of the hotels, they're like, oh no, they're fine. You know, like people have learned how to coexist with them, but it's just that constant pounding of education. And like, you know, the other thing that I learned too is, um, because I've seen some other people, they're like, oh, we got to really create signs. Signs are good. Oh, we got to make pamphlets, you know, and we got to do these type of posters and we're going to be passing it out. You know what? Guess what? Majority of the time, you're going to be wasting paper. Like, no one's going to read it. No one's going to read it. Do not waste. You know, we, we do have some pamphlets and we give it to those people. You can tell the ones that are, they'll read something, you know? We just don't go out and just pass it, you know, like knock on someone's door and pass something to them. Cause the majority of those people are going to just toss it out, you know? So we do have stuff for those that are truly interested and you know, they're going to read, but overall the best thing is just face to face and have a con conversation. Like that is, that is the majority of our outreach. I do not rely on pamphlets, posters, or signs because it is, if just looking at, all the different types of outreach or or 
education that I've seen all over the world and people still struggling in some areas and just kind of really what, why, why are you still struggling after so many years of getting this community to be behind you, you know? And again, it's just, you, there's that lack of building a relationship with the community. And then just also, again, just really not having face-to-face -face conversations and not being continuous with the education. And so by learning, I mean, I hate to say it, by learning by others' mistakes, or I don't want to say complete failures. It's it's not a complete failure, but just, I would say the slow progress. I've just picked up on some of that stuff and it's like, okay, this is what we're not going to do. And I feel that has really spearheaded our overall crockwise community here in Placencia Lagoon. I, um, so when I do these kayak tours, one thing that I've noticed is like, if you're, especially when I'm talking about either, because the two biggest things are, either gators or um shark you know people are asking about that and i found like if you're super passionate about explaining to them and why you're not going to just get attacked randomly by a shark or an alligator um you know when you're, you're super passionate about that they're more likely to to not only listen but actually believe you um yeah. which i think is what got why steve Irwin was so effective at getting people into the hurt world and stuff is because you're so passionate and people are like well this is this is I believe him. They're harmless. This is cool, you know, and stuff. I told a, I told a guy today because he's asking about shark and stuff, and his he had a daughter with him. And she was like freaking out. And I told her, I said, why don't, why don't you want to eat your paddle right now? And she's like, I was like, because you don't recognize his food, do you? Like a shark doesn't recognize you as food either. It doesn't want to eat you. It's the same exact thing. It's the same reason why you don't want to yeah. eat your paddle right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's actually a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, and so. So anyways, I, I, that's something I've been, the, I, the kayak tours I have been really good to add on because um, there's a lot of interpreting and, and, and uh, education work with that stuff. And it's, it has helped me like with figuring out how to explain that to people and getting them to listen and understand it too. Cause it's not even like some people just don't listen and the ones that listen aren't going to retain you know, so you got to make it so that they, they listen to you, but then they also retain the information and, and believe it, you know? So, and that, I mean, that's the other thing is that when I, when was, I was living, living in, LA, in LA, I, I was working at a wildlife sanctuary and, you know, they tell you what to say and you just constantly repeat the education. And it was always about why these animals are so important for the environment. And one thing I've learned here. Some people don't care if they're eco engineers or, you know, they help their crocodiles eat the diseased fish. Some people do not care. So if you just only speak about that, you're not going to get the support. There's some people that are like, oh, this could be good for tourism. I'm listening, you know, because they, they want money or for other reasons. And then one of the things that I feel that has really hit home is we talk about the importance these animals are to the culture of Belize. And you can find the ties of crocodiles with the ancient Maya civilization. You can find stories with the local Creole and even the Garifuna. And so one thing is, is that, you know, if we lose crocodiles, we lose a bit of our culture. We lose a bit of who we are. No matter how much money you have, no matter what your education is, People are proud of their culture and no one wants to lose their culture. 
And so that is how we have really hooked people in is by talking about the cultural aspects. Imagine if the bald eagle went extinct in the US. You know, I mean, people would be like, oh my God, like that is, that's losing a bit of the American culture. And so yeah. that's, we, we, if I feel like if anything now, we talk more about the cultural importance of crocodiles. And again, that has, and it, you know, I had this one intern, he's like, oh, you're tricking people. I'm like, I am not tricking people. I'm not making up stories. Uh, what I'm doing is the reverence that, the ancient civilizations or people had pre, you know, up to the 1800s, like all this got lost through colonization. All we're doing is in a sense, finding out the facts that have been muddled down by the English. Because if you wanna exploit a resource, the best way to exploit a resource is to make people not care about that resource, whether that's habitat, whether that's wildlife, whether that's people. And so the thing is, is that people, you saw here in Belize that there was this disconnect between, you started losing this disconnect with nature because the British were pushing Belizeans aside. You can no longer have any control over your habitat or over your wildlife. This is ours. And so by just that disconnect, people lost, you know, oral stories. And again, this kind of respect or this knowledge of how to coexist with wildlife. And so all we're doing is providing, we're, you know, we've dug up these old stories and this education and we're just kind of providing what's been lost. And so, but again, it is something that I have seen. And so I will use it more, but by connecting culture with wildlife, that seems to get people's attention and wanting to take positive action for local wildlife. It's um, it's kind of like how, well, that in um, it kind of goes. It's a little bit different, but it kind of goes along that thread. But just making it about them, as opposed to, like, like you should save this crocodile because it's a crocodile. But like, like for instance, I feel like that's why they still, for some reason, teach that we breathe air from trees, you know, when we don't, you know, and so. I, I feel like it's because, it, you know, people care more about trees if, if we need them to breathe as opposed to they're important for habitat and other things, you know. So, but yeah. Did you have something to say, Nate? Nope. Oh, I thought you uh, – <laughs> I, thought, I thought you had a question. But yeah, anyways, um, that that's the other thing is, like, making it about their culture, just making it some, about, like, about them. Like people care when it's about them as opposed to exactly people care yeah. when you don't have I, I feel especially in this world where it's now about being a social media superstar or having the fancy clothes or going to the Hollywood parties or you know, I I feel a lot of society is is a bit selfish per se. Um you have a lot of indigenous cultures where it's more of a community aspect, but that is being lost due to modernization and, and technology and all that kind of stuff. It's it's the community mindset is being lost and it's more of the me and the selfishness. And so, but yeah, if 
by in regards of that, by trying to educate people about conservation and having that connection to them. I mean, that's, that's what's going to get people's attention per se. Yeah, for sure. It's a, that's what I like to tell people. I feel like conservation is the hardest and maybe I'm biased, but the hardest field of science. <laughs> Cause it's a funny it <laughs> You have to wear so many hats. <laughs> um, but yeah it's a fine line between conserving wildlife and dealing with humans <laughs> yeah so. right like I, I i i'm an extrovert i i really am an extrovert i have my moments of being an introvert and i feel like that's happened the more and more i've gotten into conservation because for all those that want to get into conservation guess what you better be ready to interact with people because there's a lot of interaction with people. <laughs> so if you really don't like people or you're like, I just only want to work with with wildlife and animals, don't get into conservation. Yeah. Get into the research. You know <laughs> you don't have to more the more of the lab stuff. You'll never have to talk to anyone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's what the mosquito research that I do, it's eight hours in the lab by yourself it's brutal <laughs> but it's it's nice to balance it with the kayaks then you get to talk to people all the time yeah yeah i think people that just don't talk i had um I had these people that just didn't talk didn't ask any questions had no reactions to anything i told them or showed them i even got a casting pia an upside down jellyfish but I had to like dive in the water to get it to show them. So I like dive underwater, grab it, pull it up. Most people just in general, like ooh and ah at an upside down jellyfish. But, and the fact that I had to dive underwater and pick it up and show them, they were just completely stone-faced, didn't say a word, didn't, no reaction, nothing. I'm just like, what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> I, yeah, I've, for various reasons, I've had to deal with people like that. And I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to entertain myself now. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like I don't know I feel like they've got to be I feel like in general people are very interesting if you can figure out how to talk to someone most people are very interesting but people like that I don't understand they've got it I don't know they've got to be just so boring like what could possibly make you interested in things <laughs> so I don't know. but it's just funny people are weird <laughs> can be difficult sometimes <laughs> yeah but i guess that's part of the fun yeah <laughs> all right uh nate did you have any other questions nope cool well um did you is there anything that you wanted to end with no nope. no all right well i was talking about talking to marissa but <laughs> I don't think so. I think we covered a lot and we covered, we went into the parasite stuff. Um, yeah, I guess if anything, just look out in the next year when we publish the paper about Ricky Bobby and how the parasites led to uh, that Crocs metabolic bone disease. So yeah. talking with people, that's a first and it's, and that, and it really has gotten people to start thinking about maybe some metabolic bone disease they've seen in captive animals was not caused due to poor husbandry or anything like that. It was, they had parasites, but nobody was looking for it. So it's really interesting. You know what? Actually, I just made this connection that you just said that. 
um, when reptiles get prolapsed colons, it can be caused from impaction or a parasite. But I've also read that it can be caused from metabolic metabolic bone disease. But maybe the metabolic bone disease it's caused by those parasites. Caused by the parasites that's causing the prolapsed colon. That's super interesting. Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's super interesting. I wonder. Have you looked? Have there been any any studies at all into that with reptiles? No, I don't think so. Wow, that's super interesting. Yeah, a lot of people don't think about parasites, and they're fascinating little creatures. There's like, oh my god, there's a world of studies that can be done, and if you like, if anyone again, any young scientists out there is like looking to get their name out in the research world, doing something with parasites most likely will get you there. It's a field that really hasn't been touched, but people are starting to understand the importance of, of parasites for various reasons, even in the ecosystem, um, how they have an important role in ecosystem dynamics. So they are starting to get their, their due diligence and time um, in the lights right now. Cool. I guess it's kind of like when they started to realize venom had uses for medicinal uses rather than just uh, making anti-venom and stuff. And yeah, exploded. now there's all this research into to venom and stuff. It's cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, not a problem. Happy to come on any other time if you guys or hear anything interesting with the CRC, what we're doing. Happy to happy to discuss it. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Right. Thanks. Bye. Bye.